morning, Trent Vineyard. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Greetings from KXC, what I like to call the most vineyard church in the Anglican communion. Um, my pastors were here at Trent as students, and so it does feel, in a sense, like coming home, being with you. Thank you so much to John and Debbie for the invitation. This morning, we have been meeting with God, and we will continue to meet with Him as we come to His Word. Our passage for this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 1, from verse 1 to 11. I'll be reading. Please do follow along. And when I finish reading, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord. And you'll be invited to respond. Let's give that a test run. This is the Word of the Lord. Wonderful. 1 Samuel chapter 1 from verse 1 to 11. Hear these words from God's word. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf of Ephraim. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Penina had children, Hannah did not. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Penina and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would only give her one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Penina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Penina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? He's a sensitive soul. You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Halak got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord, and she made this vow. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we are looking at God's providence amidst our pain. Providence in pain. On that note, let's share together another word of prayer. Spirit of the living God, Spirit who was present at the beginning, 
hovering over chaos and bringing new life. Thank you that you are here hovering over us. Thank you that you are here to continue the work of creation, the work of new creation in us. We invite you, we welcome you. We are so grateful that you are here, present to us. Lord, we ask in this moment for grace to be present to you, that you might, as we have sung, have your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One month ago today, my phone was stolen. The day after, while I was in the O2 store reporting the theft of my phone and blocking its SIM, the handlebars on my rather nice bicycle were stolen. And the cherry on the tragedy cake was last Thursday when I had a bike accident and adopted the costume that you find me in this morning. So it's been, it's been, a, it's been a wild ride of a month. Can I get an aww? Thank you very, very much. Now, in this moment, I am showcasing my pain and needlessly and rudely seeking your sympathy. But alongside it, I am highlighting aspects of my recent experience. And yet in highlighting something of my recent experience, I imagine I'm highlighting something of yours. Perhaps not quite in the same way, but pain and loss and an unexpected turn of events is absolutely not unique to me as we meet here this morning. And as I look out on you, as we gather together to worship the one true God, there are absolutely, unquestionably, stories of his goodness and kindness, his provision, his faithfulness all over this place. Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. And alongside those stories, there are other stories, perhaps known perhaps unknown, stories of loss, of devastating blows, of unanticipated pain. Pain is no stranger to me in the past month, but I venture to say it's no stranger to others in this room. And it is no stranger to our central character in this morning's passage her name is Hannah, and that experience of being punched in the gut by unexpected circumstances, that experience of things not quite going the way that you hoped they would go, that is her experience every single month. Why is that? It is because Hannah longs to have a child, and she finds herself every single month outside of this experience. We anticipate that it is initially unexpected loss. She grows up 
surrounded by women who seem to pop out babies with ease. She grows up seeing this as the norm. It's one of her society's highest expectations of her, that she will one day be married and have children. And the day comes, she is married, she is joined to her husband. She expects that any matter of time now, the babies will come. And she waits, and she waits, and she waits. And if there's anything that's worse than unexpected loss, it might be the form that loss now takes in Hannah's life. You see, she moves from unexpected loss to expected loss. Because every single month, she dares to hope that things will be different this time. But in a matter of days, that hope is cut short as she finds herself in the same situation over and over and over again. So as we come to meet Hannah in this passage, we find her in the place of loss, of deep longing, and of pain. I imagine she's not the only person in that situation this morning. Now, she is our main character, but she is not our only character. So in the first two verses of this passage, we are introduced to three people. The first is Elkanah, Hannah's husband. We get his pedigree in the first verse. He is a thoroughbred Israelite man. So this is a family, this is a household that is part of the covenant people of God. They know the one true God. They are surrounded by nations that are worshiping many other gods, but they know the one true God, Yahweh. And as a family, they are part of the covenant family of God, the people who have been brought out of slavery in Egypt and brought into a new land that they might know God and enjoy him in the land and witness to him in the world. So Elkanah is our first character and we are told that he has two wives and rooting him in the story of the people of God as we are led to do from that first verse, the fact that he has two wives is something of a curiosity Why does a faithful Israelite man have two wives? Yes, there are those in the biblical narrative up until now who do have more than one wife. But what the norm is, what God laid down in the beginning was one man and one woman. Why does Elkanah have two wives? And we find the answer in verse 2, part B. Penina had children Hannah did not. You see, in the preceding verse, we are introduced to Hannah first and then Penina. So that suggests that Hannah was first married and then Penina was married. And why was she married? She was brought in, as it were, to succeed where Hannah seemed to fail. And so this is Hannah's situation. Every single month, She is experiencing deep longing and deep pain. If that weren't bad enough, she has a rival brought into her very home. And if it couldn't get worse, it does get worse. Because Penina doesn't just have a child, she has children. And so each morning, Hannah wakes up and there are children in her home that call her husband, Daddy that are not hers. Pain after pain after pain. 
Hannah knows the Lord. She's part of a worshiping family. And so she has that. But in the midst of knowing him, she knows deep pain and deep frustration. There is a longing in her heart. We can imagine it's the first thought in her mind in the morning and one of the last thoughts in her mind at night. And it is absolutely present when she's in that place of worship. There is something that Hannah is trying to get God's attention about. It's what we find when we zoom into this passage. Let's take a moment to zoom out from this passage. What's happening in the nation of Israel at this time in its history? Well, we get some pointers to that when we come to verse 3 and part B. It says this, The priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. In this verse, we are introduced to three new characters. Eli... Hophni, Phinehas, priests of the Lord. So they are designated, they are set apart in the nation of Israel to be those who, number one, minister to the Lord, and number two, lead the nation in the right worship of the one true God. You see, there are right and wrong ways to worship this God, and they're meant to lead people in the right worship of God. How are they doing? How are they doing in this? Well, we'll find out when we turn to the next chapter, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. No respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests, failing in the one thing that has been entrusted to them in their time in history. And how does God feel about this? Does he just wink along from heaven and say, boys will be boys, you best believe not. As the passage continues from verse 27, the Lord sends, as the passage says, a man of God to the household of Eli, and he tells them, you're messing with the wrong God. I can see what you do, and I take it seriously that rather than lead my people in right worship, that you lord it over them, that you abuse your authority over them, that you plunder from them rather than add to them, that you are rather than leading people in worship, distracting from worship, and that grieves my heart. In this passage, we see God in deep pain, deep pain as he receives this insult after insult from the family of Eli, deep pain. And God says judgment, God pronounces judgment over the household of Eli. But alongside the deep pain in the heart of God, there is also a deep longing. And we are brought into it in verse 35 of chapter two. Then the Lord says, I will raise up a faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire. I will establish his family and they will be priests to my anointed kings forever. When we zoom in onto this passage, we see that there is a deep pain and longing in the heart of Hannah. There is something that she is trying to get God's attention about. When we zoom out, rather surprisingly, we see that God feels that there is a deep pain and longing in his heart. And could it be that there is something 
that God is trying to get Hannah's attention about. You see, God says, I've seen this situation and I long to remedy it. And one of the things that I'd be inclined to believe, considering that God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, is that it is nothing to God to remedy a situation. He'll just send you know, the heavenly stork down with the faithful priest and all will be well. But actually, as the biblical story unfolds, we see that while God does have all power, power to do all things, that there are certain hallmarks of his activity in the world. And there's one of them in particular that dawns before us in this moment, that God is a God who works through participation with humans, with you and I. It's one of the greatest mysteries in the Bible. God could just act unilaterally over and above time and space, but he longs for participation. He longs for those who will open themselves up for his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Could it be that God is looking for a collaborator with his purposes? Hannah knows deep pain and deep longing, and she's trying to get God's attention. God knows deep pain and deep longing, and he's trying to get Hannah's attention. How will these two things meet? The answer is unexpected. The answer is Panina. Panina is the answer. Now, here's a free tip for handling the Bible, in particular the Old Testament. Names are significant. And often when we uncover the meaning of names, they can give us a new layer of insight into what is happening in a passage. So I've got some meanings of names for you. Elkanah Hannah Penina. Elkanah's name means God has purchased. Hannah's name means grace or favor. And three, Penina's name means pearl. And there is a drama here because in one sense, each of these characters are living up to their names. Elkanah, God has purchased. He's part of the covenant family of God, worshiping the one true God. That makes sense. Yet in one sense, it doesn't make sense because here he is committing one of the cardinal errors of the people of God when a man goes in his strength to fix a problem before him by himself. Here, the problem of wanting a child and not being able to have a child. Those of you who are more familiar with the story know that one of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, Abraham, finds himself in a similar situation, foolishly goes his own way in remedying the problem, and things do not turn out great. So what is the one that God has purchased doing, plowing that same line? There's a drama there of him not quite living up to his name. What about Hannah? Grace, favor. In one sense, she is absolutely favored. She is the favorite of her husband. He gives her the choice portion of meat. He loves her more than the wife who has sons. In one sense, she is absolutely favored. But Hannah would tell you, what use is the favor of God when the thing I want most in life is the thing that most eludes me? What does favor mean then? And Penina, Penina's name means 
pearl, thing of beauty, something to be celebrated. And in one sense, she absolutely is celebrated. She's able to succeed where it seems Hannah has failed. She has sons. But here we see the one whose name means something of beauty behaving in such an ugly way. There is such a drama at play. What will be resolved? Will these people live into their names or will this tension continue to apply? Well, in this moment, we hone in on Penina. Her name means pearl. Now, how is a pearl formed? A pearl is formed in shellfish, in oysters, or in mussels, and it's formed in their shells. What happens is that there would be a parasite, an external organism, something on the outside that would seek to come in, seek to make its way into the shell. And what happens is that elements from the shell of the fish get secreted onto the inside to form a protective barrier against that which is seeking to encroach from the outside. And as As these substances keep getting secreted, a pearl is formed. Could it be that Panina is not the pearl? Could it be that she is the irritant, that she is the provocateur? You see, in verse 6 and verse 7, we are told that Panina taunts Hannah again and again and again. Another way of translating the Hebrew that is used there is that Panina provokes Hannah, that Panina is irritating Hannah, that Panina is pushing her again and again and again and again. So often, circumstances in our lives can be like that when we feel like we are at the end of our rope and then something else happens where is God in the midst of that and you see in this situation there is certainly that which Panina intends it's not hard to imagine that Panina is just trying to provoke and provoke and provoke and push Hannah to breaking point where she is forced to get out of the home and Panina can have Elkanah all to herself the end of this sharing business so you best believe that Panina has a motive in this and it is absolutely not for Hannah's good it is for her frustration But could it be that in the very thing that the enemy means for evil in the life of Hannah, could it be that the ancient of days, the I am that I am, the beginning and the ending, could it be that he has another motive at play? Could it be that in the very same circumstance that is seeking to destroy Hannah, that the Lord is propelling her into this place? Could it be that when Hannah is most at the end of her rope, that she is exactly where God wants her to be. You see, amidst Panina's endless provocations, amidst her irritations, amidst her agitations, Hannah gets pushed to a certain place. And it's this place that is the hinge point in the narrative. You see, Hannah does get blessed of the Lord. She does bear a son. But before that, she lands at a location that is crucial for all that is to come. And the name of that place is Surrender. Hear these words again from verse 10 and verse 11. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow. O Lord of heaven's armies, 
If you will look upon my sorrow and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. Oh Lord God, if you would meet me in this place, of excruciating agony. Oh Lord God, if you would show yourself to me in my place of deepest despair, that I will take what is most ultimate to me and I will lay it down at your feet. When Hannah is most at the end of herself, she finds herself in the place where God has been desiring for her to be all along. And in this place, in this place of worship, where Hannah doesn't just engage superficially with the Lord, but she brings to him the depths of who she is, in that place of worship and of surrender, she knows the transformation of her pain. She knows the Lord taking what the enemy meant for evil and turning it for good. And more than just her having a son, that she can wave in the face of her enemy. A nation gets a priest that again holds to the faithful worship of the God of Israel. Could it be that as you meet with the King of glory in this moment and don't engage in shallow, superficial worship, but instead have the courage to meet with God in the place of pain, longing, and desperation. Could it be that you can host breakthrough, not just for yourself, but for the world around you? Could it be that God has an agenda with your pain that is bigger than the very worst that the enemy can throw at you, that is bigger than his taunting, that is bigger than his mocking, that is bigger than his jesting? Could it be that God is present even in the place of pain? The testimony from the life of Hannah is absolutely so. People of God, as we gather this morning, there is an invitation from the Spirit of God to come further into worship, to meet Him afresh in the place of surrender, to allow it to bubble up in His presence, to not be those who suppress it because we can't handle it, and also because we suppose our God can't handle it either. Surely He's got better things to do. In Hannah surrendering her pain to the Lord, He takes it, he honors it, and he transforms it. Are there those this morning who will meet with God in that place? Jesus is beckoning us forward. In Jesus, we are those for whom, as Romans 8 says, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Later on, it says, how could he who did not spare his own son not freely give us 
all things. If you are here today and there is a situation that has prompted such pain in you, such questioning, such agony, the invitation of the Spirit today is clear. Bring it to God in surrender and in worship. He is bigger than it. He longs to minister to you in the midst of it. Jesus assures his followers, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I am bigger than your trouble. I have overcome the world and in me you are those who overcome. This is the invitation of the Spirit to us this morning. And the question that he leaves before us is how will we respond? Will we meet God in the place of pain and let him transform it? Let him transform us. Let him do through it something that is bigger than what we can ask, think, or imagine Will we hold it back from him, get embittered, and never see the fullness of what the Lord is trying to provoke out of us from the inside? The invitation is ours. The invitation is yours.